Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. I'm Ishani. And I'm Nishan. This is episode 14, One Does Not Simply Plan. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkien verse ahead. With that said, let's get into it. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the One Does Not Simply Show um, podcast. <laughs> I got, I got my, I got all tongue tied because we have a special guest today. Uh, Navia's brother Nishant is joining us, um, himself already an internet star in his own right, to uh, talk about chapters eight and nine of um, book two of the Fellowship of the Ring or book two of Lord of the Rings. Nishant, I understand that you have read this book before, um, but. This time for today, you just read these two chapters raw yeah, by themselves. Yeah, uh, kind of, kind of jumped in for a little bit. Uh, yeah, I read it in high school, and um, it's good, good to get back into the mix. I'm glad you guys had me on. It's always great to get more male voices in media. We don't have enough. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I agree. For for anyone who doesn't know us, I guess listening to the show, my brother is. Um, like seven years younger than me. So we've had very different experiences growing up with Lord of the Rings. Um, like, I guess, how did you discover it? You want to give us a little background of your history with it? Well, we had, I mean, it was your movies that we owned when, when I was a kid. Uh, I think by the time that I got into it, you were already in college. Um, I would have been in middle school. And yeah, we had like the extended edition movies. So I actually watched the movies first. Uh, which I feel like a lot of younger people do uh, because the movies weren't like coming out or anything. They were just already there. Um, so I got really into the movies. And then once I got into high school and I actually had an attention span, I started reading the books. And uh, that provided another layer to it. So, Like you had a positive experience with the books? Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, like, I, I love them. Uh, I, I mean, I, there are points for sure where I think the books have flaws um, and you guys have talked about some of those, like the weird, overly descriptive nature that Tolkien sometimes has, um, when talking about routes, uh, to places. But, uh, I, I did enjoy the books. I'm, I would consider myself a pretty big fan. I went as Gollum for Halloween once. That freaked people out. Nice. Um, <laughs> My issue with the, with the routes thing is still that, like, I, I actually don't mind travelogue writing. I just... I just wish that it was that it was easier to read quickly. Like it, all of the like route descriptions take me like three or four reads, like for the most part, to like actually get a sense of what's going on. I feel like you and I are are, are doing it very differently in that sense. Where when I get to a part where I'm either like bored or I don't really have any like investment in it, I kind of just skim it and I don't bother to try to picture in my mind exactly how it's mapped out and i feel like you're actually putting in the effort to try to map out this land in your mind well i'm trying to get the value out of the book that that tolkien put into it um <laughs> well i suck <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> i mean the other like the other consequences that like as you guys saw i uh, i put my notes into our google doc five minutes before we recorded three times running and uh this time <laughs> this time in chapter nine i had i had let's see um i have three notes for chapter <laughs> nine um and one of them is a note that says yes these are all my notes so actually i have actually i have two notes um for chapter nine so you know uh tomato tomato um Speaking yeah. of chapter nine, hey, you want to give us a chapter summary? No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, sucks. Do it anyways. Yeah, so the Fellowship has to leave Lothlorien, but they still have no idea whether they want to go straight to Mordor or to head to Minas Tirith, uh, which would involve revealing the ring's existence to the people in charge in Gondor. So they just don't decide, and they sail down the Anduin River instead. They go with the goodwill of Galadriel, and she also gives them some parting gifts. Some people get beautiful individual gifts, and some people, like Boromir, just get belts. Three people got belts made of a precious metal for a wilderness trek, which is, like, 
It's the equivalent of giving somebody a gift card to a store they're never going to go actually shop in. What do you do with gold when you're trekking across the middle of nowhere and the whole idea is that you're being stealthy and you're not going to encounter people? Maybe Galadriel doesn't like Boromir very much. <sighs> she has been a little, like, off with the things that she's reading in his mind. Like, mm -hmm. everyone else, she's kind of like, yeah, they're totally ready for this mission. And then something feels off with her vibe with Boromir. I mean, certainly he's off. I think this might have actually been the previous chapters, but he is definitely a little off in terms of his vibes towards her and towards sort of the company as a whole. Um, although also, I don't know that I blame him. I feel like this sense of like indecision and we're just putting off these big decisions that need to be made I'd probably be a little stressed and a little irritable, too. Yeah, there's there's a part where I, I think Frodo uh, is, is his internal monologue is kind of talking about how Boromir's looking at him weirdly and how mm -hmm. he doesn't like how Boromir said that it would be bad to just cast away the ring of power when you're walking into Mordor. And I, at first glance, I was like, yeah, Frodo, like that does seem kind of weird. But then I thought about it more and I, I actually kind of agree with you, Ishani, that that's kind of just reading into someone trying to have a point. And the ring is valuable, and Boromir does have a point that it is probably their only leverage. And uh, so I think that knowing where what happens, like you said, uh, Navia, like knowing what happens later kind of influences your rereading of the book. And you're like, yeah, Boromir's shady. He's his vibes off. Like, <laughs> uh, who do you know here, Boromir? You know, like. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I think that's in some parts that kind of comes to comes to the forefront. Yeah, I think also, um, I I feel like Tolkien was trying really hard to make him seem shady here with with Frodo's take on it. But in reality, I think he just comes off sounding pretty reasonable because if you think about it, no one is having a plan on where they should go, and he's the only one that's like, yeah, let's just go to Minas Tirith, guys. Like, we have a destination, let's go there, and everyone else is like. But also, I don't have an alternate option either. <laughs> yeah, and nobody so is dressing for the job they want in the fellowship right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, also, can we talk about the fact that this is the first time they've discussed what to do next, and they've been in Lorien for how many days now? Yeah. My personal interpretation of this was that, like, that, that Gandalf dying really threw off a lot. First off, their odds of succeeding taking the ring into Mordor go way down when they don't have the wizard anymore. And then also, I think when they still had Gandalf, the assumption was always that Aragorn was going to go with Boromir to Minas Tirith. Um, and now Aragorn has, has to prioritize the quest. And I feel like that means that since Aragorn can't go to Gondor with, um, with Boromir anymore, Boromir seems like he spends these two chapters like angling every once in a while during this, like trying to see if anybody's going to go to Minas Tirith with him. And eventually he's like, I'm going to go to Minas Tirith by myself if everything I've done for you does not warrant anyone going with me, hint, hint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a little, like, desperate feeling. He's he's kind of like, his mission is still to save his city, right? He, he hasn't really gotten on board with the full mission being to destroy the ring. He's kind of still thinking about options. And it, I don't think it's as shady as, like, he's decided he's going to take the ring at this point. It's more just like, well, nobody else seems to have a plan. So let me at least start thinking of what all the options are. But yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying where, where Gandalf has just died and it's thrown off the plan they had. But like a few key business meetings maybe at this point, like establish some OKRs, you know? <laughs> like Yeah. It, <laughs> It feels you like knew it would if this was your last night. It's not like they suddenly kicked you out. Like not even oh you had this time where you were staying in Lorien, but presumably you had time knowing that you had picked a day to leave and still didn't talk about where you were going to go. Like not even a little conversation to spitball some options and like mm, poor planning to say the least. Aragorn is one of those leaders who's really charismatic but not so great at the organization is what I'm going to say on his feedback report. Yeah, I I agree with uh, with that 
thing about Aragorn and, and with what Wanda was saying earlier where Gandalf kind of shook everyone by mm-hmm. just dipping out. I think there was no contingency plan. I think Aragorn was kind of in this VP spot where he was just like, <laughs> if you remember yeah. how Joe Biden was acting when Obama was president, he was just like, oh, I'm just this like cool guy. <laughs> and now Aragorn is suddenly like, okay, you have to actually make decisions now. And it kind of reflects his internal monologue where he's just like, well, my plan was to go with Boromir and like use his sword and stuff. But now... Uh, I kind of have to decide where everyone's going. And I think that everyone is kind of looking to him. And Boromir's, part of his frustration is, well, listen, is Aragorn really that much more qualified than me? We're both (laughs) the guy with the sword. We both have experience. And I happen to be from the city that we should be going to right now. And so I, I think that there's a lot of that kind of tension between those two, which I don't think is explicitly written down, but where Aragorn's kind of thrust into this role and is he really the guy for the job is what Boromir is kind of uh, struggling with a little bit. Right, but he made sense as a guide, but arguably he hasn't necessarily led a large group of people. He hasn't had to make decisions on sort of a global or even national scale because he's been avoiding that responsibility his whole life. (laughs) Right, and we get this, we get this like, Kind of implicit, like, this guy's gonna be king, because we said so. Yeah. And so he's implicitly the leader. But that also doesn't even really make sense in the context of the various people that comprise the fellowship. Because, I mean, Legolas is a prince, right? He's gonna mm-hmm. be the leader of his people one day. Like, I don't really know what Gimli's role is. I don't know how the dwarf lineage works. I don't think he's in line for the throne. But, like, why is why is Aragorn's kingship more important? than any of the other people and like you said he's literally spent his whole life trying not to be a leader so he is not making decisions in fact he even says at various points in this chapter that he's relieved that he doesn't have to decide for a little bit longer because like they they plan out the next five feet so he doesn't have to think 10 feet ahead right it's like it's like a pretty it's it's a not very concealed metaphor for how aragorn doesn't want to decide what path to pursue vis-a-vis his kingship. Yeah. Um, except then they get to the Argonath, um, which are like the ancient guards of the realm of Numenor, these big statues. Um, and Aragorn has this moment where he like throws off his cloak and he's like, I'm king, yo! <laughs> <laughs> I'm king and I've come home. I actually, I really liked that description of him doing that because it was this moment where he, you know, he... It's written that he is having this really majestic moment where he throws off his cloak and and he is king, but everything around him is still really ominous feeling. Like, the Argonauts is not a chill place, the river is really intense at this point, everything is described really darkly, and it's kind of this moment where it should be a moment of triumph, but it's really a moment of uncertainty, where you don't get the sense that even though he feels comfortable in that space, like everyone else is looking at him being like, yeah, that's my cut. <laughs> well, and it doesn't really feel earned either because you make a really good point about everybody else arguably, or at least there are several other people who arguably have at least the same qualifications of leadership, if not more. And you I mean, mentioned- Bormir's literally been doing his job. Right. Until well, now. and you mentioned Gimli. And one of the things that really stood out to me, like this whole section throughout Lorien, is how politically savvy or like diplomatic Gimli is. Gimli is so tactful and so good humored and like almost single handedly repairs the relationship between the elves of Lorien. And the entire dwarf population, right? Like, he is so charming and likable. Gimli's respectability dwarf. Yeah. We had a kind of different takes on on this aspect of Gimli, though. Going, circling back after all that to the gifts that we were originally talking about. So, um, so we get these gifts, right? That, and, and Gimli gets, um, or he asks for a hair from Galadriel's head. Uh, first he asks for nothing, and then she insists, and then he asks for that. And Ishani, your take was pretty much like way to repair this relationship, <laughs> and and my take was a, like I didn't honestly know how to feel about this because it felt like yes, it was this 
courteous and noble thing to do, but it also felt like weirdly subservient to me. Like he was saying mm. that, yes, I accept that the elves are so much better than the dwarves that all I want is like just a single hair from your head. I don't know. I, I, I could read it both ways and I, I came away just not really feeling comfortable with, with that gift. It also seems like, like Gimli says at one point, give me those hairs from your head and I will put it into a big hairy crystal and it will stand forever as like a symbol of goodwill between the dwarves and the elves. And Gladiel comes back at him with, here's some hair and it will forever be a symbol of what a good dwarf you are. Oof. Yeah, I didn't notice that, but that... And and notice that, like, there is no symbol in Lorien of the dwarf that came there to repair the relation, right? <laughs> like, Yeah, there wasn't, it wasn't an exchange of hairs. Yeah, like, I want some beard hairs encased in Lorien trees. <laughs> like, okay, so this is where, are you going to do the lore drop about the, the gift of hair, though? I don't know what you're talking about so by all means oh okay there's a thing right like the reason the elves react the way they do to Gimli's request is that in some far off time and I didn't prepare to do the lore drop on this so I don't know all of the details but basically at some point prior um there was either a similar request made of Galadriel or somebody tried to take Galadriel's like a hair from Galadriel as a like an indicator of their affection for her um and she refused them so there's sort of a precedent there um 98% sure I'm not just making this up I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's a real thing it sounds like it and it sounds like the thing that would change my reading of this gift giving right mm-hmm. if, if Gimli knows about this and everyone else knows about this then yes this is a hugely symbolic gesture I guess yeah. like to me it was more the way that Gimli was just like fawning over Galadriel in this like I have never seen anything more beautiful in mm-hmm. my life um kind of way it it just struck me a little bit like a, a lack of pride I don't know Maybe I'm reading too much into it. There's another part that kind of relates to this that I wanted to talk about, uh, which kind of, I think, reflects both of this. So when the elves give Gimli, or rather Gimli, starts eating uh, the whey bread, the the little elven cakes um, that uh, they give him, he kind of does a similar thing where he goes, this is literally the best thing I've ever eaten. Like, I know some pretty good bakers, like, this just blows them out of the water. And he kind of does that thing you're talking about where he just like puts it on such a pedestal. But I also think that that might have to do with what Ashani was saying, where he's just being very diplomatic and very uh, goodwilling towards the elves in general. Uh, I think that this part in particular and the part with, with Galadriel stood out to me because like Lord of the Rings was published in like the 1950s. It was a really long time ago. And to have different cultures interacting in this positive of a light especially when there was like angst towards one another that stood out to me because of the time that it was written in and i think that that's oddly progressive way of an oddly progressive way of looking at it, an oddly positive approach for someone that's just coming off the heels of world war ii at a time where cultures in different parts of the earth are looking at each other very negatively and to say that oh you know, this guy, he comes here and he's just like immediately embracing. That just, that was, that was pretty surprising um, looking back on it just because of the times. Yeah, it was like the, the elves and dwarves relationship is something we were talking about. We talked about it a few times in the podcast so far. Um, and last time we were kind of talking about like whether the, like the, the animosity that's between the elves and the dwarves that Gimli seems like he goes like a long way towards repairing here is is just because they're like really different cultures and they've they just can't understand each other for some reason or if it has like a material aspect to it because the elves are at this point in history at least they're like doing so much better than the dwarves are doing like they've got their rings of power and the dwarves have no rings of power the dwarves are basically like fending for their lives up in the lonely mountain right now um and the elves are like stay away 
don't come near us. Um, like we just, we just shun you. So yeah, I don't know. I think it's like, I think you can look at it as a progressive thing and you, you could also possibly look at it as, um, like, a as a meeting of two cultures that have, that are kind of unequal and where it's a little bit uncomfortable because the elves do have so much more power than the dwarves do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the, the thing that made me uncomfortable until Ashani said this thing about the like the history of the hairs but even so is like why is Gimli the one making all the effort here right like why is it his job to come 200% of the way when the elves started out being like no I'm gonna blindfold you I'm not gonna let you into Lorien and like they treated him really badly up until this point and yes now they're kind of coming around and being like oh maybe he's okay but it still doesn't feel like they are coming away from this being like, oh, we made a mistake. Dwarves are fine. It feels like they're coming away from it. Like, okay, we'll let you have this one, Gimli. Don't come back here. <laughs> yeah. Although Legolas is, is, is making an effort at least. That's true. The bromance is in yeah. full force. <laughs> Tolkien literally yeah. goes like, Legolas and, and Gimli at this point are like really tight now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a line that's something like that. I was like, oh. No, and that's true. Like, I don't think I, very much it was a joke to even sort of say that Gimli ends elf racism, because I think the elf racism is still alive and well. Um, but I do think Gimli comes off as very positive in these chapters. I don't know whether or not the elves do. Um, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and just say that they still don't really. But yeah, it context right context i think matters a lot in how you read pretty much every interaction that they had it felt very courtly like old school medieval you know asking for favors and tokens and i think in that context the floweriness of the language doesn't seem so off-putting but certainly in a modern context it's a lot give me one hair from your head and then ask me to the Sadie Hawkins dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. how it goes. Oh, for real though. I mean, that's like that's how I read uh, like Gimli all throughout this chapter. Gimli seems like he has like a Lana Del Rey album playing in his head constantly after he goes <laughs> to Lothlorien. He like says after they leave Lothlorien, he's in a boat with Legolas, and he's like, "So you could put me in Mordor tomorrow. I don't even care." Like. Like, literally, Galadriel could run me over with the car, and it would be better than what I'm going through having to leave her behind. And, he and like, Legolas has this, like, moment of having to, like, calm down Gimli. He's like, you know, it's it does say something healthy about you that, like, you could have stayed in Lothlorien, and you, you chose to, like, go with your friends. And Gimli's like, it still just sucks so much, dude. It sucks so much to leave it behind. <laughs> And I related to that. I actually like like deeply like deeply related to that. Like Gimli seems like if he's king of nothing else, he's like king of nostalgia. You know, Gimli's just like Galadriel could step on my balls if she wanted to. <laughs> yeah, he's he's simping pretty hard here for her. Let's be real. Yeah, he's trying to create the simp stone with Galadriel's oh, hair God. encased in crystal. <laughs> um. Although something you just said reminded me that like. One thing that's interesting is at the beginning of this chapter, Celeborn, um, actually, yes, uh, Celeborn, why are you here? But he does give everyone the option of staying in Lorien instead of continuing on the journey. And I found that interesting that nobody took him up on it, even like Mm -hmm. the hobbits that like, yeah, Frodo's got his mission and Sam's kind of tied to Frodo, but like Merry and Pippin as well have this whole time now been like, man, I wish we could go home man, this really sucks. I did not like sign up for this kind of journey. And the the fact that all of them collectively are like, no, we're going to keep going. I think it really says something about the strength of these characters. It does. And also Celeborn's pitch for staying in Lorien was the literal worst. It was yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, so you can go ahead on this quest or you can stay here to fight with us and die. <laughs> Like, yeah, his options are like stay here and fade away and die with us, or stay here and maybe we'll have a war and you can die that way. <laughs> I mean, also you can't go home. Yeah, that's because what he said was you can't return. You can stay here and fight, and then if you survive, maybe you can go home, or else you'll take the long road back to whatever afterlife you believe in. I'm like, 
wow, dude, you're really not selling it. Also, why is he here? Like, Ugh. Galadriel could have easily done this job of telling them all of this information. We don't really need him. And all it is is just, like, an opportunity for Aragorn to thank him instead of Galadriel. Why? He didn't do anything. <laughs> I mean, he is a little bit. It feels like Celeborn's presence is a little bit akin to the male anglerfish, which is he's there because the lady got to reproduce. So he just kind of leeches on and then hangs out, <laughs> not doing anything. Is Galadriel still having babies? I mean, they can't be having that many because they would have a massive elf overpopulation problem since none of them are dying off. Right. Like, but also, I mean, at what point do elves stop aging? Like, presumably they are born as babies and then they grow up. And then, <laughs> like, what is the yeah. kind of like, y- you will be this age eternally? I don't know. Maybe they're, maybe they're not born as babies. <laughs> it's just like... Athena style, they are produced from cracks in the forehead, yeah. That is an interesting question, though, because, like, I mean, Elrond is definitely older than Arwen, right? But he has stopped aging, and so has she. I don't know I, how I that think, works. I think the elves aging would, would probably just be attributed to humans writing this book and thinking, what age would I like to be forever? And that's... Yeah. Pretty much how it goes, I I would guess. That's probably true, yeah. And plus, like, we shouldn't take casting decisions into account. Like, we don't actually know how old they looked. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like this is a really good segue into... Into something else that's not this this topic. (laughs) Well, no, into the other topic we want to talk about, which is mentioned a few times in this chapter of, like, the idea of how time works for the elves. Yeah, you want to take us on that journey? Uh... Well, I think you you pointed this out in your notes, too. I, I want to find the exact line that Legolas says. Well, what he says is, like, at a certain point, like, after they after they all leave, Sam observes that the moon is not where it should be, given how long that they were in Lothlorien. And uh, then Legolas and Aragorn explain that while, they're, while they were in Lothlorien, they were existing in a different kind of time-space plane. Yeah, here's, here's the quote. Uh, Legolas says, Nay, time does not tarry ever, but change and growth is not in all things and places alike. For the elves, the world moves, and it moves both very swift and very slow. Swift because they themselves change little, and all else fleets by. It is a grief to them. Slow because they do not count the running years, not for themselves. The passing seasons are but ripples ever repeated in the long, long stream. Yet beneath the sun, all things must wear to an end at last. I want to have like a like a big metaphysical conversation about what like what Tolkien is actually implying here. Well, the way that I read this was like, you know, time itself is is a constant like it, it keeps moving. But depending on how long you experience things for, you can perceive it differently. So, you know, like a fly that only lives for 24 hours is going to experience time very differently than a human that lives for 100 years, right? But the time itself, like the same amount of time has passed no matter which perspective you're in. Well, and that's true even within a human lifespan, right? That there's a reason why it feels like years pass by more quickly as you age and it's because relative to your total lived experience a year is less and less of your total lifespan the older you get right so at seven a year is a tremendous amount of time in all of my experiences and at 27 a year is much less time and at 57 a year is like nothing God, I'm freaked out thinking about it. <laughs> You're welcome. I don't want to be 57. <laughs> Pressing journey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but this is like an exaggerated example of Tolkien doing what he's been doing throughout the book, right? Which is like, um, like creating some really bizarre aspects of Middle Earth, like the lake next to the Misty Mountains that you can look into and you see stars, even though it's daylight. Um, or them going into like the old forest and meeting Tom Bombadil, who is um, like a uh, like an ageless creature that takes a humanoid shape and like exists kind of beyond good and evil. 
now like now you get like Lorien where the the elves exist sort of out of time in a way right mm-hmm. but then they're still described as fading right so that like it's like they exist kind of outside of time but yet all things must come to an end well i think that's like i think that's part of what makes the elves so interesting that tolkien has put immortal characters into middle earth like as a way of talking about how nothing is really immortal and mm-hmm. everything kind of fades. But it's also like, I, I would, I would dispute the idea that the elves are going to fade regardless of what happens, because don't we already know that um, the elves, what the elves use the three rings that they have for is to preserve the habitability of middle earth against kind of the natural, it's like, it's sort of natural progress um, towards being an elf free place like the the world's like the world's natural inclination is to become less and less habitable for elves Mm -hmm. because the world is kind of changing faster than elves can keep up with it um but the elves also have some technology that they can use to preserve it yeah but i think the existence of the one ring kind of precludes that the elves have to fade away in some way or another because either the ring is destroyed and their rings of power lose their power slowly as a result or the ring goes to Sauron and Sauron kind of takes over no matter what. Because I think the implication is that the one ring is more powerful than these other three rings. Right. So the elves actually, like, the elves could create this technology, ring technology, to preserve the world as it is for them. But um, but because Sauron also created the one ring, their the fate of their rings is kind of bound up with the fate of his ring. And it's actually not clear if, like, the rings that the elves have would be as powerful as they were if there if the one ring didn't exist so as to like amplify the power of the three rings mm-hmm. so it's all very metaphorical and abstract and tolkien doesn't explain all of it in super yeah. crystal clear detail yeah i did want to go back really quick to one thing you said though which is that everything in this world has that kind of like implied fading away there is actually one exception to that and that is tom bombadil like <laughs> we <laughs> He he exists apart from time, really, and I I wonder what Tolkien's intention was in including that because it really suddenly takes away from this like this idea that he's trying to create this kind of like beautiful but tragic idea of everything coming to an end. But then we've seen a character that doesn't, right? Is he supposed to be like God in this world? Like I don't really understand what he was trying to do there. The way I interpreted the whole interpret generally how the the races so to speak work in middle earth is that the elves are supposed to be what we as humans want to be um the humans depict some of humanity mostly flaws and the dwarves represent also humanity closer to what some sects are and to represent inequality as we were talking about earlier with the elves um and then Tom Bombadil, I would say, kind of represents that idea of you, there's never, you can't ever have everything covered. Because if Middle Earth was just ev- all the things I just mentioned, plus like orcs and whatever random other crap they have there, um, and there wasn't anything ambiguous and anything unknown, then that would take away from the allure of Middle Earth in general, because... If you know everything, if Tolkien wrote down literally everything, um, which he tried to do <laughs> in some parts, um, <laughs> then then what is what is there more to discuss? Like why why are there podcasts? And what is there more to learn about? So I think it's it's really the, the idea of the unknown makes Middle Earth a more attractive topic and place. I actually really like that, and it kind of almost answers my question of like Tom Bombadil is is the metaphor for the unknown in our world too, mm-hmm. right? Like we do have unknowns that we experience and and maybe he is intended to represent just like the idea of sitting with that and and being okay with not knowing well i think like the you know what's interesting about the elves compared to tom bombadil is that um tom bombadil is perfectly at home in the forest right he has he has this limited dominion where he's in the forest and he takes care of the forest and um protects the occasional like wanderer through the forest and and he seems like he seems like completely at home in his in his like limited domain um and he's also he's also comfortable with the fact that i think the forest has been shrinking and the elves like as a counterpoint to that 
the elves like appear at first to be this like immortal immovable presence in middle earth but then you discover that they're they are actually they're they're actively trying to preserve um a time in middle earth that has gone by so the elves as opposed to tom are they're they're sort of doomed because they're not just they're either doomed because they're they're not going with the flow and letting like time run its course or it's more like a, a a definitional thing where um where Tom is just Tom Bombadil is is not um mm, like he's not he's not bound he's not bound by anything right he has no he's not trying to preserve anything and he has no ambitions and that kind of allows him to like maintain and like abide Oh my god, Tom Bombadil's the yes. dude in The Big Lebowski. <laughs> I assumed that was intentional. Um also Tom Bombadil is I love that. I love this whole discussion, but what this means is that Tom Bombadil is the reason that this podcast exists. So <laughs> Yeah, going back to what Nish said, like I think yeah, I think Tolkien put in Tom Bombadil so that we could have the podcast. Yeah. Shout out, <laughs> thank you. Thanks, John. John Roken Roken coming yep, for us again. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I like that thing you said about the about the elves uh, and how they're actively trying to preserve, which kind of makes them less uh, able to do it than Tom Bombadil. It's kind of like a quicksand paradox where, mm-hmm. like, the more you try, uh, the the more you fail at, at, at the task that you're trying to achieve. And Tom Bombadil's just like kind of laissez-faire, uh, and in doing so has more power. And maybe that's why he decides actively. I don't know if he does or not, but. Maybe that's why he actively decides not to interfere with the happenings of Middle Earth and get involved. He's not—he's not human in the sense that he's not striving for. He's not really striving, I guess, to say, like in general, in the way that the elves are striving. And I think the elves, like the fact that they're that they have science and and craftsmanship, puts them more on a level with humans than humans, even though they're not. Dwarves are weird, though. Well, I mean, I think you could say that if. The elves are that urge that humanity has to preserve things, right? To cling to the past and to sort of maintain the way things used to be. That the dwarves are more, like, forward-striving in that they're about sort of exploration and growth and creation and, like, reopening things that were lost but doing it in a new way right it's not about preservation it's about sort of recreation um or reclamation in some cases which and also about about pushing those boundaries mm-hmm. right like sometimes they delve too deep but it is because they are pushing forward. right they're exploring and trying new things and sort of striving in a way that we don't really see from other races, honestly, like even the humans, which probably are hardest to categorize as a broad group, right? But the hobbits are very sedentary as a people. The elves definitely are to the point of being stagnant. And the dwarves are the total opposite of that. I think that um, you know, I was kind of a, a little bit touching on this earlier, but I think the way that humans are portrayed in Middle Earth in general is in a pretty negative light. Uh, pretty much every human outside of Aragorn, who I don't even classifies as human anymore, um, they all of them seem to have a lot of flaws. Uh, pretty much all of them that we meet, and I think that that what that kind of has to do with the dwarves is that you know you have humans at here, which is where the bad side of what actual humanity is, I, I believe, a lot of the negatives. And I think dwarves and hobbits could be seen as two positive paths. Dwarves, as as you were talking about earlier, uh, as the, you know, like the curious, the the evolving, the, the pushing into the future. Um, again, in a kind of era where the book was, was made, was a lot of stuff happening around technology and everything. And then if you look at hobbits, that's more of the the happy, the carefree, uh, another positive that you can take of humans. And then finally, to complete that kind of rowdy rhombus, so to speak, um, <laughs> you, have, you have the elves up top, which is what humans aspire to to uh, be or become or what, what they want. Uh, and then one other thing about what, what humans want that I just noticed was kind of funny is that when 
Galadriel gives Merry and Pippin the cloaks. Pippin is like, are these magic cloaks? And she kind of goes into a description of what the cloaks actually do, rather don't do. And I was just like, this is literally just Middle Earth North Face jackets. <laughs> like, yeah. That's literally all it is. It's just hot when you warm when you want to do, cold when you don't, so... Actually, it's funny you brought that up because my my I also had a note about that particular moment, uh, kind of in relation to what we were talking about of, of the different perspectives of time. Also, the different perspectives of magic is like if you live in a world where magic is like around you all the time and it is part of who you are, then it's not magic to you. It's just there. Yeah. Right. It's the way we would consider like technology that we have. I mean, if you gave an iPhone to someone 100 years ago, they would be like magic. Right. Yeah. So. The elves don't see these cloaks as magic, but Pippin does. It And to him, it doesn't matter that they're saying it's not. It is magic, right? That it can hide him at any point, or it can be warm or cold when he wants it to. Like, he doesn't know anything like that. Yeah, Galadriel says that at one point, like, to Frodo, right? Because, um, or maybe to Sam, because Sam's Sam says while they're in Lothlorien earlier on, like, I, you know, this has been really great, but I wish I could see someone do some magic. And Galadriel, like, walks up right on cue, and she's like, I don't know what magic is. Um, but come over here and look in my fucked up mirror. But then shows him magic. Um, yeah. (laughs) No, right. He like looks into, he looks into her mirror and he's like, I never want to see magic again. Um, yeah. Yeah. The dwarves, like, like to your point, Nish, I feel like the, the dwarves kind of remind me of like industrial revolution era development. And the elves kind of remind me of like people right now who are like all about recycling and like, you know, like using, um using like wind power and solar power but uh are, are still <laughs> i thought you were gonna go in a different direction with that i thought you were gonna be like the dwarves are like classic nimbies <laughs> no <laughs> no i was i was gonna say like the dwarves are like the dwarves are like classical like classic style industrialization and the elves seem like evolved industrial practices that are using like sustainable methods but are like still like still kind of hurtling towards doom because they're trying to like they're trying to like take up they're trying to like be sustainable in a world of like limited resources that's not meant to not meant to accommodate them it is funny to think about like uh the i don't want to make this a COVID episode or anything but um <laughs> it is really funny that this pandemic kind of shook a kind of untouchable people that had like what escaped the food chain and you know didn't have to deal with plagues or wars personally here at least in america um as much and now you kind of have this huge unknown come and hit uh come and hit that and it it kind of makes you think about what the elves uh or galadriel's husband i'm not saying his name was talking about uh where he's like well eventually someone's gonna come rock us and you can be here for that Yeah, no, it's totally true. I mean, like, I, I think that I think that a lot of people like historically talk about Lord of the Rings as an allegory for World War Two. But it like what with Galadriel saying that, you know, no matter what happens with the ring, the elves are on the cusp of their doom seems like what it really seems like the series is like a is like supposed to represent is moments in history where like you have you have like crisis and you can't like a civilization can't go forward as it's been. To your point, Navia, about like how um how Merry and Pippin thinks the clo- like think the cloaks are magic, and the elves are like, no, we don't really know what that is. I there was a moment that was kind of like that later on in the chapter where Celeborn was talking to them about Fangorn, and Boromir was like, oh yeah, Fangorn Forest, I've heard of that, but uh, I'm pretty sure that like they're like everything that's going on in Fangorn Forest is just a fairy tale. Um, like over in Gondor, we like tell we like talk about the Ents as if they were fairy tales to our kids. And I realized that like one of the things that I really like about these books is that they it, it Tolkien creates a sense of realism by like dreaming up these like overlapping civilizations that all kind of treat the other ones as mythical and like treat parts of the other ones as like this isn't real. Yeah, I also really liked Kelleborn's response to that where he says, you know, you shouldn't just discard stories because you think they're fairy tales. Like they're probably still being told because there's something important in there. Yeah. That it's like, it's kind of how, you know, a lot of our fairy tales have morals to them and the intent of continuing to tell them and pass them down is to pass on that moral message. Right. Right. Exactly. Also you uh, brought up Fangorn, which made me realize that 
there's a critical thing we have not mentioned in this episode yet, <laughs> which is that there is a river. Oh and its no. name is Wet Wang. Yeah. Wet Wang is after you bone the bone from its owner. <laughs> <laughs> wet Wang. It's the, canon. The, the, wet, the wet Wang. Wet Wang is canon. <laughs> All right. Um, did you guys have anything else you wanted to talk about? We want Should to do we a do quick a, fire? Or do a quick fire round? Yeah, that sounds fun. So we do this at the end where we just do like our, any takes that you didn't get to mention about the chapters. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll go first. I'll go first. Um, there is one gift that we didn't get around to mentioning. And it actually, um, th- this is probably my favorite scene I think I've said that about so many scenes at this point, but I really like this scene. Um, Sam's gift from Galadriel of this box of essentially dirt. Um, I thought this was really beautiful. Um, And the reason that I thought that is, first of all, because I know what happens with this box of dirt later on. Um, It ends up rebuilding the Shire. But also, I love that everybody else got gifts that meant something to them in the context of this journey. But Galadriel got uh, Galadriel read something in Sam that was like, you're the one who wants to go back and build a life when you go back. And the fact that she senses that at this point and gives him a gift that is not for his journey, but but for his return. I, I love this concept. I love this image. And um, I also just love the idea of like. When we when we get to the end of this, you know, Frodo he moves on. He doesn't want to be back in the Shire. Merry and Pippin, like, go off and do their own thing. And Sam is the one that, like, is desperate for a return to normalcy. He just wants to have his life back. And this is, like, the thing that ultimately allows him to do that. And I just thought it was beautiful. That's such a good one. That was that was the first thing I was going to talk about, too. Um, but you did it way better than I was going to. So I'm going to, I'll do something else. What I was going to say is that I looked at the map this time for like the first time in a few chapters and I like am totally, I, I was totally wrong about some of the geography in Middle Earth. For some reason, I, I guess I always thought that like there was, there was like Gondor and then like right next to it, like right to the east. I guess I just thought that Gondor was way further east than it was, but it turns out that Gondor is like directly south slash southwest of Rohan. Um, and the, all of the description is for not all of it. Yeah. All of it. I spent like all this time <laughs> reading the long descriptions and I didn't take in like this basic fact. <laughs> Did you guys like, were you guys, were you guys aware of this the whole time? Has anyone else been I'm, surprised by that? I was aware because I looked at the map, not because I understood in my mind from his descriptions where it was. Yeah, I'm terrible at geography, and the descriptions are basically no help to me. So the only reason I have any idea what the sort of location of various places around Middle Earth um, look like is because I spent hours doing the fucking cover art, and so I have stared at that map for far longer than any one human needs to stare at that map. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I didn't realize that Minas Tirith is like, in the northwest corner or the northeast corner of Gondor. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I have a, a, a thing about chapter 9 actually uh, that I didn't talk about it that much, but there's this part where uh, they're talking about the or-, or sorry, not, yeah, they're talking about the orcs coming after them, I believe, and um, they're saying well, Sam goes like, this is probably Gollum's doing, he's attracting them, um, or, 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 or whatnot. And I, I I really like how Gollum is discussed uh, in these chapters because he's one of the, if not the best character in the um or more most complex character in the entire trilogy. Uh, he's such a central one, and I really like how in this part of the uh, of the series he's not a central character, but you know he's gonna be one because he's just constantly like there but not there and seen but not seen and 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 so on and so i really like the slow build up of what the hell is Gollum and like what are we in for um so i really like that and that's something that you get i I think in the books that you don't get in the movies is that slow pace because although the movies are long they kind of have to keep it rolling so i can't get over you going as Gollum for halloween nishan i think that's so funny 
I should try to find the mask. It was, it was really funny. horrifying. It was the worst thing I've ever seen. It was, it was like sixth grade too. Yeah. Also, he used to regularly wake me up by just appearing at my bedside with that mask on. And it was so horrifying. I had, I had that one. And then I had a really creepy Russell Wilson mask that I also used to use. Because uh, uh, I can't decide which one is scarier. It's just like Gollum's creepy face or Russell Wilson's going, <laughs> there's there's no uh visuals on this podcast. Oh uh, yeah. Russell Wilson, yeah, just having his like, like a manic manic face. grin. Yeah. If I was going as Gollum for Halloween, I would like I would just wear the like blue neoprene that like Andy Circus wore during filming with like the little like white pads on it. People would be like, Dory, and I'd just be like, Yeah, I'm Gollum. <laughs> just a mo- full mocap suit <laughs> with little ping pong balls. I have I have one question since you guys all know people that love Lord of the Rings. Has has anyone does anyone know anyone who's either proposed or gotten proposed to with like the One Ring? Whoa! It was a dream of mine <laughs> when I was young. I'm gonna propose with like the Goofy Goober Ring from SpongeBob. Uh, that's my plan. So someone's yeah. gonna get real lucky. Well, it sounds like after that proposal, you'll have another chance. So your second time you try, you're <laughs> the one rings the backup Oof. right now. <laughs> Dang, Wanda. Uh, All right, Ashani. Okay, I'm trying to figure out what my quick fire is. There were a bunch of like little things, uh, including the story I didn't tell about Wanda's my adventure with Wanda that nearly ended in <laughs> catastrophe. Everybody on this podcast has like a story about how me almost getting them killed reminds them of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I mean, Wanda, you have a gift, right? So that was an option. But I think what I'm going to go with is the last line of chapter nine made me so mad because it was like, and this is how they start the last stage of the quest. And I sat there going, what the fuck are you talking about? The last stage of the quest? Now? No! They haven't, like, there's a whole entire mountain for them to climb. I was so mad about this. I was sitting there going, this is premature ejaculation. Like, what the <laughs> hell? I am, it was purely for the purpose of a dramatic statement and it was bad and wrong we have two more books to get through it could be like a pie chart situation where tolkien said okay the first here's the first one here's the second one here's the third last stage of the <laughs> they're just planning to run to mordor from this from like once they cross yeah. the anduin maybe that yeah they, the eagles were uh, they're already there they're yeah they're gonna take the eagles now <laughs> last stage of the quest is then they get on an eagle and they fly the eagle to the mountain and they drop the ring in. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, anyway. Going halfway and then using the eagle. Yeah. Everyone's just like, oh shoot, Gandalf told me with those eagles. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, let's wrap it up, dogs. Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Wanda. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, Nishant, and all our listeners for joining us on this journey. If you like what you hear, give us a rating or review on whatever platform you listen to.